Georgia voters go to the polls today in a Senate runoff election that will decide which party will control the U.S. Senate. Republicans only need to retain one seat to maintain control. Democrats need to win both runoffs. Three million Georgians have already cast ballots in the election that pits incumbent Republican Senators David Perdue and Kelly Loeffler against Democratic challengers John Ossoff and Raphael Warnock. President-elect Joe Biden attended a rally for Warnock and Ossoff in Atlanta on Monday. He told Georgia voters that their vote can affect the direction of the country. You have two senators who think their loyalty is to Trump, not to Georgia. You have two senators who think they've sworn an oath to Donald Trump, not to the United States Constitution. President Trump held a rally for Purdue and Leffler in Dalton, Georgia. Trump continued to make baseless claims about fraud in the, in the November election. He appeared to pressure Vice President Pence, who presides over the formal certification of the election results Wednesday in Congress, to not recognize Biden's victory. And I hope Mike Pence comes through for us, I have to tell you. I hope that our great Vice President... Our great vice president comes through for us. He's a great guy. Of course, if he doesn't come through, I won't like him quite as much. Purdue and Leffler did not cross the 50% threshold in the November election to avoid runoffs with their Democratic challengers. Purdue faces off against Ossoff. Leffler faces Warnock. If both Democrats win, Vice President-elect Kamala Harris would cast the, dev- the deciding vote in the Senate. Police in Washington, D.C. have arrested the leader of the Proud Boys for burning a Black Lives Matter sign that was torn down from a historic black church in downtown Washington last month. 
The Metropolitan Police Department says Henry Enrique Tario was arrested Monday after he arrived in D.C. ahead of protests planned by supporters of President Trump to coincide with the congressional vote expected Wednesday to affirm Joe Biden's election victory. Tario was arrested on destruction of property and weapons charges. Police say officers found him with two high-capacity firearm magazines when he was arrested. Kenosha, Wisconsin is bracing for another round of protests as prosecutors prepared to announce whether they'll charge a white police officer who shot a black man in the back last summer, leaving him paralyzed. Kenosha police officer Rustin Shesky shot Jacob Blake seven times in August as Blake was about to get into an SUV during a domestic dispute. The police union has maintained Blake resisted arrest and was armed with a knife, although state investigators have said only that a knife was found on the floor of the vehicle. Blake's three children were in the back seat of the SUV when he was shot. The shooting sparked protests that went on for several nights. Some of them turned violent. A teenager from Illinois shot two protesters. England is entering a third national lockdown that will last at least six weeks. This comes as authorities struggle to stem a surge in COVID-19 infections that threatens to overwhelm hospitals. UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson announced a tough new stay-at-home order for England until at least mid-February to combat a new, more contagious coronavirus variant. In England, we must therefore go into a national lockdown which is tough enough to contain this variant. That means the government is once again instructing you to stay at home. A lockdown took effect this morning. Scottish First Minister Nicola Sturgeon also imposed a lockdown that began today. The two leaders said the lockdowns were needed to protect the National Health Service from becoming overwhelmed. Meanwhile, French public health officials are under pressure for the slow rollout of the vaccine there. Officials have promised an exponential acceleration of the country's slow coronavirus vaccination process. FSN's Ross Cullen reports. On Monday, France accelerated its COVID-19 vaccinations with thousands of medical staff in hospitals getting the jab after being criticised for a slow start in what's one of the most vaccine-sceptical countries in the world. France administered only 516 inoculations during the first week of a campaign that focused on nursing home residents. And that's Ross Cullen reporting from Paris. And I'm Max Pringle. You're listening to Sojourner Truth on Pacifica Radio. And this is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth, uh, still doing the show remotely, however, uh, back from a, a very brief uh, vacation. And I hope you definitely enjoyed all of the shows that we prepared to share with you uh, during that time. And we're wishing you all good things for 2021. Now, kicking off today's show. Since 2010, journalist Julian Assange has made international headlines after publishing bombshell documents and videos through his organization, WikiLeaks. The information, according to U.S. officials, was provided by U.S. Army intelligence analyst Chelsea Manning. Chelsea was imprisoned from 2010 until 2017 when her sentence was commuted. From March 2019 to March 2020, Manning was jailed for refusing to testify before a grand jury investigating Julian Assange. She was released the day after an alleged suicide attempt in jail. 
Assange's leaks exposed U.S. complicity in the deaths of innocent people during airstrikes in Iraq and Afghanistan. Following their release, the U.S. launched a criminal investigation into WikiLeaks directly targeting Julian Assange. He has been charged with 17 counts under the U.S. Espionage Act, and the U.S. has long sought his extradition to face those charges. In November 2010, Sweden issued an international arrest warrant for Julian Assange on rape charges charges that he has denied. Some supporters say the charges were uh, a pretext for him to be extradited to the United States, while others say the women should be believed, but that Assange should not be extradited to the United States. Freedom for Assange has been supported by activists around the world. They say that he has not only been a victim of harassment, but also of torture because of his whistleblowing journalism. In 2012, Assange took refuge in the Ecuadorian embassy in London, where he was granted asylum, citizenship, and a place to stay. In 2019, however, Ecuador's new right-wing government revoked Assange's asylum, and British police raided the embassy and arrested him. And since then, Assange has been held in Belmarsh, a men's prison in the southeast of London, England. Let us go to a clip now from CBS on the latest developments. We have breaking news this morning on Julian Assange, the WikiLeaks founder accused of revealing U.S. classified information. Elizabeth Palmer is in London where a judge has just ruled in his case. Elizabeth, what can you tell us? Good morning. Yes, well, the verdict was a surprise. It prompted a huge cheer among Assange's supporters outside the Old Bailey, the Central Criminal Court. Uh, the judge's verdict says that Julian Assange will not be extradited to the United States to stand trial on mental health grounds. She says that he's depressed, he's despairing, and that conditions in U.S. jails, uh, which she described as oppressive, uh, could make him a serious suicide risk. If extradited, he would have faced 18 counts, one of computer hacking and 17 espionage charges. Uh, all relate to classified documents he published on the WikiLeaks uh, website relating to the Afghan and Iraq wars, along with thousands of confidential diplomatic cables. Although she did block his extradition, the judge rejected his defense, essentially, which hinged on the fact that he, he maintained he was protected by freedom of speech laws. Theoretically, if he was found guilty, he could have faced more than a hundred years in jail. In spite of that verdict, though, Assange did not walk out of court a free man. Instead, he was remanded straight back into custody because the U.S. legal team announced they are going to apply, uh, they're going to appeal probably as soon as this week. So this case is far from over. Gail? Wow. All right. Elizabeth Palmer reporting from London. Thank you. Yeah, and as you just heard in that clip, lawyers uh, for the U.S. government said they would appeal the decision, with the U.S. Department of Justice adding that it would continue to seek Julian Assange's extradition. In response, Assange's attorneys 
said they would request his release from the London prison where he has been held for close to two years. Assange will appear on Wednesday at Westminster Magistrates Court in West London for a new bail application. Now, before we welcome our guests, though, let us go back to one of the scenes of the crimes, one of the reasons the United States has been uh, so against um, Julian Assange and WikiLeaks is the release of a video where the U.S. military caught in action killing innocent civilians, including some reporters, media reporters from Reuters. Let's go to that clip now. In April 2010, the most shocking vision to come out of the war in Iraq was published by WikiLeaks. All right, firing. Let me know when you have it. Light them all up. Come on, fire. The U.S. Army video filmed in 2007 showed a group of men, almost all unarmed, being gunned down in a Baghdad street by an American Apache helicopter and recorded the voices of the soldiers carrying out the attack. Come on, buddy. My God, just pick up a weapon. One man had reportedly been carrying an RPG, a rocket-propelled grenade, but two of the unarmed men who died were Reuters news staff and two young children in a van were seriously wounded in the onslaught. Clear. Clear. Come around, clear. The title given to the video, Collateral Murder, marked the launch of a highly politicized agenda for WikiLeaks, driven by the website's founder, Julian Assange. Of course, the title is absolutely correct. It speaks about a very specific incident. Uh, if you go to cladlemurder.com, you will see the exact incidents talking about when a man is crawling in the street, completely unarmed, wounded, uh, and he is killed by a 30mm cannon from the air, very intentionally, um, and his rescuers. I watched the Apache helicopter attack in the video uh, with the eyes of a former Marine infantry officer. I was a platoon leader and company commander, and I was also a battalion training officer who had trained troops on Nuremberg and the laws of war. It was very clear to me that what I was looking at was a war crime, was murder. Alrighty, and that last voice you heard was uh, Daniel Ellsberg, and prior to that, you also heard Julian Assange uh, speaking in his own name. I would now like to welcome our guest, Kevin uh, Gastola, writer, publisher for Shadow Proof. He curates a subscription newsletter, The Dissenter, and hosts The Dissenter Weekly. Both cover whistleblower stories extensively. He also co-hosts the Unauthorized Disclosure, a weekly podcast, and contributed a chapter to the book in defense of Julian Assange from Or Books. Kevin, welcome. Hey, thanks for having me. 
Okay, Kevin, really, really chilling. I, I, I have to say I have some trouble finding that uh, clip because for some reason you have to go through a, a lot to try to get that particular clip about uh, collateral murder. When I first um, heard it and played it on the air, it was chilling then, chilling now. Reuters reporters killed, uh, children uh, being killed. We know that WikiLeaks is controversial on a number of fronts, but this is uh, one job that WikiLeaks did uh, that we really can't forget about it. We know that that is part and parcel of why the U.S. is so angry with him and also with uh, Chelsea uh, Manning. Um, before we talk about what's happening with Julianne now, uh, just your reaction um, to that clip and the and the work that WikiLeaks did to expose uh, this kind of murder and brutality, Kevin Gascola. It's important for us to understand that there's a reason why we all feel that Julian Assange and WikiLeaks are controversial. It's because there are people in our politics and in, in intelligence agencies that have. Uh, waged campaigns of smears against them, and uh, this has been documented by UN Special Rapporteur on Torture, Niels Meltzer, and and he's done extensive work looking at the kinds of character assassination that has been ongoing for the last 10 years, um, not just against Julian and WikiLeaks, but also against the source, against Chelsea Manning as well. There's been a fair amount of material put out there. Um, to go against her. Um, and we know there's been a war on whistleblowers for the last 10 to 15 years that was ramped up, particularly under President Barack Obama, accelerated and intensified by President Donald Trump's Justice Department. Um, and so, yeah, that clip that you played, um, it's, it's really one of the things that was most gripping and startling when the disclosures were published by WikiLeaks. It's, it's vivid imagery. And um, it was one of the most clear-cut examples of a war crime that WikiLeaks published back in 2010. Right. And uh, you saw now a very different um, physically, and who knows if emotionally, uh, Julian Assange, as he was trotted out uh, to these hearings, this after his supporters say he was really tortured uh, during the time that he was in the embassy in Ecuador. Um, tell us what you know about um, uh, Julian Assange's condition. We know that he does have a couple of children now um, with his partner, and uh, the judge is saying that she's concerned about his mental health. Kevin. Yeah, she said, she said that extradition would be oppressive for mental health reasons because uh, if he was put in a prison in the United States, he would likely be designated for something called special administrative measures. And in those measures, he would be uh, basically uh, very nearly cut off from all friends and family, had very limited access to phones, maybe only two 15-minute calls a month to people. Um, these are restrictions that have been documented by organizations like the Center for Constitutional Rights, um, I believe the ACLU, other organizations have followed this closely. It's been written about how horrible it is for anyone with mental illness who is in ADX, Florence in Colorado, the Supermax prison. And Julian has, um, has been diagnosed with a recurring depressive disorder 
He's also been diagnosed as being on the autism spectrum. And so there's precedent in the United Kingdom for rejecting an extradition of a person to the United States because of how cruel our incarceration system is to people who have mental illness. Well, and uh, generally uh, to everyone, I mean, it, it was interesting that the judge was concerned about conditions within uh, U.S. prisons. I mean, you talk about the special treatment Julian Assange would get, but across the United States, you have um, from people from the Black Panther Party, for example, who have been in solitary confinement for more than four decades, which in itself is a, a you know, is considered uh, torture, and also the U.S. having one of the largest incarcerated population in the world, uh, 2.3 million people in, in jails and prisons ac across the country, this according to the Prison Policy Initiative. So the reputation of the United States and its uh, prisons and how it runs its prisons uh, seem to have uh, some play here. But tell us what exactly this means, because the U.S. is saying they will appeal. Assange's lawyer is saying, well, they now want bail. They want him released uh, out of prison. Uh, just tell us what you know about the situation right now. And also Mexico, Manuel Lopez Obrador on Monday offering political asylum uh, to Julian Assange. Kevin. It's a positive development for Assange and his supporters that the Mexico president stepped forward right away to say we would be a place Julian and his family could turn to in order to seek asylum from any further persecution, um, which we know has existed. Um, it's come right from within the heart um, and soul, although maybe it's better to say they're heartless, but it's come right from people like Mike Pompeo when he was running the CIA and, and labeled WikiLeaks a non-state hostile intelligence service and, and, and very, uh, very much put forward the idea that it is a criminal enterprise. On uh, January 6th, which is, which is Wednesday, tomorrow, uh, there's going to be a bail application hearing to try and get Julian Assange out of the Belmarsh High Security Prison, which I just remind your listeners that right now, um, and as people have heard on news headlines for today, there is a lockdown in London. Um, they're very concerned about how rapidly COVID-19 is spreading once again. And that has been a problem in the prison unit where Julian Assange is being held. So I expect that to be raised as one of the arguments for getting Julian out of prison during this appeal. The appeal is going to be very narrow. It has nothing to do with the crimes that were alleged against Julian because the judge actually believes those that, that, that the prosecution has evidence for those. Now, what it's going to be about is convincing a three-panel appeal court called the High Court of Justice that the United States system is not cruel and inhumane and would not abuse Julian Assange in a way um, that will complicate his mental illness and push him to commit suicide um, and fail to prevent him from committing suicide if he was in a U.S. prison. And uh, that is going to be something because I do think that there's a lot of evidence on the defensive side to support um, keeping people from being sent to the U.S. prison system.
Yeah, I was going to say good luck with that one. Uh, yeah. Given increasingly the world knowing about what goes on inside uh, U.S. prisons. I mean, the prisoners um, in California um, went on a massive uh, hunger strike some years back uh, about the torture of solitary confinement and other tortures within prisons. So that it seems to me as though that would be a very difficult case to make. But help us to, to understand a, a little bit, unravel a, a bit, because um, what we're hearing, according to Reuters, is that the Obama administration had opted not to prosecute uh, Assange, right? But um, nevertheless, U.S. authorities accused Assange of offenses during the administration of Obama related to the release by WikiLeaks of the confidential uh, U.S. military records and, and diplomatic cables. And then there was a lot of controversy around WikiLeaks with the 2016 election where Donald Trump was going on about how much he loves uh, WikiLeaks and, and Roger Stone, um, you know, claiming indicted and arrested in relation to his communications and statements on his involvement in the WikiLeaks email dump that um, was said to negatively uh, impact the Democratic uh, candidate, Hillary Clinton, at the time. So a lot of controversy around him. But nevertheless, um, his supporters have been um, quite strong worldwide and vigilant, uh, not only against what they see as torture and harassment of Julian Assange by the U.S. Um, US government, basically for being a whistleblower. And now there's some talk also of, of the implications of this ruling and what it might mean for freedom of the press, of people saying, well, it really won't mean that much for freedom of the press. Just give us your final thoughts on a lot of this. Well, yeah, there's a, there's a lot that has been said about WikiLeaks in a negative sense during the Trump administration. Um, they were accused of being too cozy with the Trump campaign. Um, I would just say to people that you need to look at some of these individuals who have claimed to have any idea of what's been going on in WikiLeaks, uh, for particularly Roger Stone. Um, this guy is a huckster, I'm a liar, and a fraud, and most of what he ever said and claimed to know about WikiLeaks was false, and he had no idea when publications were going to happen. Um, and so I don't think that should enter our viewpoint about what um, happened here in the prosecution against Julian Assange. Um, yes, the Obama administration declined to prosecute. The Trump Justice Department with Jeff Sessions decided to pursue him. And I'm terribly concerned about the outcome of this decision in the United Kingdom, because worldwide, all press freedom organizations are looking at it and saying they said it was okay to go after a publisher with the United States Espionage Act. And what does that mean for journalists around the world that are practicing hard-hitting investigative journalism and need to be able to publish secret government documents without facing a threat of prosecution from the U.S. government? So that's the issue today. That's what we're all looking at. If we're not Julian Assange, we're all concerned about what this might mean for the future of journalism. Uh, right. And uh, also to... Uh, remind our listeners who may not know Julian Assange out of Australia. The Australian government has also said that after all of the trials, et cetera, he's welcome to return 
um, there to his homeland. He founded WikiLeaks in 2006, and WikiLeaks made global news in 2010 when it published a series of leaks provided, um, we are told, by U.S. Army intelligence analyst uh, Chelsea Manning. And these leaks included the part of the clip that you heard earlier in the hour, the Baghdad airstrike collateral murder video of April in 2010, the Afghanistan war logs of July 2010, the Iraq war logs, October 2010, and Cablegate in November um, of, of 2010. Uh, so quite a lot there. The U.S. government still after Julian Assange. Well, we're going to continue to, to follow this uh, carefully and closely, and we appreciate you taking the time, Kevin Gosala, to join us. Thank right, you. Thank you. All righty. This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. We're going to take a station break. And actually, our, for our next segment, we are going to be going into why did Los Angeles City officials say absolutely nothing or did nothing to stop super spreader events uh, from happening, given the crisis of COVID-19 across the state of California, but in Southern California in particular, uh, past the queue of the Church Without Walls, which is based in Skid Row in Los Angeles, uh, waiting to speak with us. Also, we are going to uh, remember um, John Odebridge, uh, a cultural icon in the black community, not only in Southern California, but across the nation. And artist Michael Massenberg is waiting to speak with us. Stay with us. We'll be right back. That is the late, great uh, Bob Marley uh, redemption song. This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. If you're a member of Facebook, you can like and friend us on Facebook. Check out our website at sotrueradio.org, where we have a fantastic community calendar, a lot more stories and, and videos, and our handle on Instagram and Twitter at sotrueradio. We're also heard nationwide and worldwide on SoundCloud. And in our tradition, we would like to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners in Weathersfield, Connecticut. Weathersfield, Connecticut. And also, I'd like to give a shout out to our increasing numbers of SoundCloud listeners in my island nation of Barbados, based in the Caribbean. And uh, now, we're going to turn our attention to uh, something very disturbing uh, that happened in Southern California. Southern California, COVID-19 continues to worsen by the day. On Monday, January 4th, Governor Gavin Newsom confirmed that there are now six confirmed cases of the new strain of the deadly virus in Southern California. It is also being reported that in Southern California, every six seconds, there is a new COVID-19 case. Since early December of 2020, COVID-19 has spread faster and harder across the region, infecting and killing thousands of people, particularly on the east side with a high 
uh, population of um, people of Latino descent also in South LA, a black and uh, Latino uh, neighborhood. So the Los Angeles County Public Health Director, Barbara Ferrer, said skyrocketing hospitalizations have led to a 700% increase in deaths since the beginning of November when the current stage surge began. Southern California has zero ICU beds available. Ambulances, if you could even get one, you may call an ambulance, but you may not be able to get it because they're running out of those as well. And ambulances are reported to be waiting up to eight hours outside a hospital just to unload a patient. And hospitals in inner city LA, very hard hit with the Martin Luther King Hospital serving um, South LA, a black and increasingly brown community has had to use its gift shop to treat patients. Meanwhile, the Department of Defense, the U.S. Department of Defense, has uh, sent help with bodies, dead bodies that are piling up, that hospitals, morgues, and funeral homes are unable to handle, given the numbers of deaths. And the military will also be sending in medical personnel, as there's a shortage of doctors and nurses. Meanwhile, hospital cleaning staff are unsung heroes, and there's no data uh, that I have seen on the impact of the pandemic on them. But despite all of this, on New Year's Eve and uh, the, the day before, Christian nationalist Sean Foyt held a series of mass musical gatherings called Let Us Worship in Southern California, putting millions of people at risk of contracting COVID-19. Um, he intended to go to Skid Row. We'll talk about that in a, in a minute. But Sean Point has held similar events across the country in part to protest against COVID restrictions. The events are basically concerts, but are billed as religious gatherings. Now, on New Year's Eve in Valencia, California, an estimated 2,500 mostly unmasked attendants um, participated with Sean in this kind of concert in a church parking lot. This despite the risk of spreading the deadly virus. Attendees were spotted standing shoulder to shoulder while jumping up and down, singing and shouting without masks. It was just one of several events organized by Foyt, who has repeatedly ignored public health orders by holding gatherings that many have denounced as super spreader events for COVID-19. Uh, let us go to a clip now um, on from CBS on grassroots organizers protesting these super spreader events. Controversial Northern California evangelist will visit Skid Row and Santa Clarita tomorrow, where he plans to stage protests with no masks. CBS 2's Christine Lazar reports tonight religious leaders who work on Skid Row say he is going to cause chaos and expose more people to COVID. This was the Let Us Worship event in New Orleans last month, led by Christian musician and activist Sean Foyt. Thousands standing shoulder to shoulder with almost no one wearing masks. The mayor of New Orleans said the event endangered the lives of her residents. Now Foyt has the same event scheduled here in Los Angeles, one on Wednesday on Skid Row and another on New Year's Eve in Echo Park. It's a super spreader event. They're coming in with no masks, no social distance. They haven't done either at their last uh, events. Chicago tried to shut them down. New Orleans 
put out a statement that they regretted that they ever allowed the event to occur. Local religious leaders and homeless advocates say they want Foyt to stay off our streets. We are saying to Sean, you are not welcome. Pastor Q, who leads the Church Without Walls on Skid Row, says he tried reaching out to Foyt but has not gotten a response. He calls the event a politically driven photo op. For those who are outside of the community, they see things like this as an exciting thing for them to do so they can be these saviors coming in to save us. Pastor Q says he will be holding a protest of his own with masks and social distance in an attempt to keep Foyt and his followers off of Skid Row. It's a shame that we have to put ourselves right in danger in order to uh, go out and, and protest this. The Poor People's Campaign sent a letter this week to County Supervisor Hilda Solis and Mayor Eric Garcetti, asking county and city leaders to block the Let Us Worship events for not having permits or enforcing health mandates like masks. This is a public health crisis. I don't think that you need to be loving Jesus um, in L.A. right now in this manner. Foyt has a large social media following where he has advertised the events and recently posted photos in L.A. apparel. If you really cared about Los Angeles and if you really cared about Skid Row, it's been here a long time and he could have come pre-COVID-19. I reached out to Foyt through his website and across various social media platforms, but did not hear back. I also contacted Mayor Garcetti and Supervisor Solis's office. Her office did get back to me and said she's very concerned about this event and she's directed both the health department and the city attorney's office to look into it. Christine Lazar, CBS2 News. All righty. So there you also in that report heard a bit about the work from the California Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival, and the letter that they sent to a number of elected officials. They also circulated a protest letter signed by over 50 faith leaders in opposition uh, to the event. And the California Poor People's Campaign also held a Facebook Live event where a multiracial group of faith leaders spoke out against the event. Um, that Facebook Live event was seen by hundreds of people. Uh, and also in Los Angeles, the LA Community Action Network and the Church Without Walls, both bases Skid Row, as you heard in that report, organized a car caravan protest against the schedule, an event that was scheduled in Skid Row. Now, I'd like to uh, welcome um, a man very much of the moment, uh, Pastor Q, LA-based minister whose Church Without Walls has been serving the unhoused of Skid Row for over 14 years. The church meets, worships, praises, feeds, and holds fellowship every Friday night in downtown Los Angeles on the streets of Skid Row, which is home for, if you want to call it that, for um, thousands upon thousands of unhoused people in the city of Los Angeles. Pastor Q, welcome. Uh, <laughs> good morning, Margaret. How are you? Oh, good. Pastor Q, tell us um, about your concerns here, because you have gone a bit further from calling this a super spreader event, and you have actually said that Sean Foyt and his supporters, how well-meaning they may be or not, are basically committing germ warfare against some of the most vulnerable uh, people, most vulnerable population in Southern California. Explain why you say that, Pastor Q. Yeah. Well, uh, Margaret, you know that we called this, you know, 
uh, resistance against biological warfare. Um, we also know that when Sean Foyt and his people came in, what they were doing is they assaulted our people with a deadly virus, right? Um, and so uh, we are, uh, I'm disheartened by not just Sean Foyt, but also by the Dream Center, who I've always looked up to as a great organization who have been doing great work in Skid Row for a long time. The Dream Center receiving uh, $60,000 at, at Sean's event, Super Spreader event in, um, in uh, Valencia. And so I realized after that that they sold us out for $60,000, put our people in danger for $60,000. And also, I'm disheartened by the Azusa Street Ministry led by Fred uh, Berry, who I also reached out to, and he assured me that he wasn't going to come into Skid Row. But what he didn't tell me was that he was, they, he was actually involved in the whole thing and actually spoke at uh, the Super Spreader event in Valencia. The Super Spreader event was actually scheduled for Azusa Street, but thanks to the Poor People's Campaign, Los Angeles Community Action Network, and the Church Without Walls, thanks to all of our efforts that they changed the event from downtown Los Angeles, Azusa Street, which is a historical place where the Azusa Street revival occurred over 100 years ago. Uh, they wanted to do it there, which is one block from Skid Row, and we knew that if they were coming there, they were going to come into Skid Row without masks, without uh, following safety protocols. So thanks for uh, helping us move that event. But it doesn't give me any more joy because they did it in someone's community. They exposed Valencia. And for Christians, people who claim to be Christians, uh, to be going around the country defying orders to try and help people, to keep people safe, I don't see Jesus protesting keeping people alive. Yeah, and, you know, the, the, the goal, too, I mean, an article came out in Deadline that's with the L.A. Mayor Garcetti saying that police, public health officials, that they will be enforced, enforcing COVID-19 rules at the point um, events. But no such thing happened. Uh, this is well, what is reportedly the mayor said. He says, quote, nobody should be gathering in a big party and nobody should be gathering in a small party as well. Do not gather with others on New Year's Eve. But they, they stood by and let these events happen, including in Echo Park. Pastor Q. Right. Yeah, let's be clear, right? Uh, um, some folks reached out to us from the city, right? And some they wanted, they wanted to know if we wanted police presence. You know how this thing, ha you know how this thing goes, right? Um, in Skid Row, we feel like the police has a bias. They see people in Skid Row as... Uh, you know, as the unwanted, as the people who are causing all the problems in L.A., they yeah. don't see the public policies that have caused situations like Skid Row. They don't see that there there's no housing. They don't see that people can't afford to live in, in this city uh, due to the high cost of living. Uh, and so because of that, we did not want police presence. Uh, to, we thought it would escalate the situation. But I said to, yeah. the, to uh, Kevin DeLeon's office, to the councilman's office that we didn't want more police. We wanted you guys to deal with this thing prior to that. We don't want to always wait until things get out of hand to deal with them. We want to deal with them proactively. So this should have been handled prior to this event. Absolutely, because you don't have to bring in the police. I, I hear your point. Um, 
you know, as a, as a person of color, you know, when you call the police, uh, as my friend Nana Jumpy says, don't expect to have a pleasant experience. <laughs> you know, it could be exactly. the opposite exactly. or you could end up and, dead. Uh, but nevertheless, it doesn't seem as though the city issued anything to Sean Foy, um, you know, saying you have to shut this down. This is not meeting or please put on paper how you are going to be meeting the standards for outdoor events. Um, clearly, none of that um, happened. So, yeah, none of that happened. Pastor Q, just your, your, your reaction now, I mean, what in, in terms of follow-up, because this guy, he's going to San Diego, he's going to Texas, uh, you know, he's, he's picking this up. Pastor yeah. Q. Well, I received, I received communication from Austin uh, saying that we are, encouraged by what happened in Los Angeles, by the way you stood up. We, we need you to help us. Uh, I also received a call from San Diego that folks in San Diego uh, want to connect. And so uh, this is not over. Uh, we are just beginning. One thing that I think a lot of these folks uh, think is that Skid Row, they know we are vulnerable. They know we are marginalized. But what they don't know is even though we're marginal, marginalized and we're vulnerable, they didn't realize that Skid Row has power. We have power. And so um, they say, can anything good come out of Skid Row, right? They say where, where Jesus was from, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Uh, they say, can anything good come out of Skid Row? Where well, Sean Foyt found out that there are good things that are coming out of Skid Row. And one of those good things is that we are going to protect our communities from he and his people. And even though we attempted to, to stop them, they still were able to do many little uh, worship services on a couple of the streets. Uh, with, we were able to uh, force some of his people to wear masks, but there were still some who weren't wearing masks. And the day after we went to Echo Park, the mayor's office were out there with 10,000 masks. They didn't do that in Skid Row. We had a, a couple people uh, from the mayor's office at Skid Row passing our masks, but over there they had 10,000 masks, and still uh, people were you know, half of the crowd did not have masks on. And while this was happening, they pulled a dead body out of the Echo Park Lake. So to me, you know, oftentimes evangelicals love using symbolism. And to me, uh, that, that symbolism shows that their events bring death. And I believe that was a symbolism from above. Right. And we're going to have to wrap it up here, um, Pastor Q. But I'm wondering if uh, the city needs now to be organizing contact tracing because you had people laying their hands, these evangelicals putting their hands on homeless people lying down on the street saying, devil, get out, and all this kind of um, nonsense. And uh, have you heard anything about any contact tracing? Because given the spread of COVID, they're, they're bound to be an impact of this particular uh, event. So just a quick comment on that. And for people who want to support your efforts of Church Without Walls and also L.A. Can, what should they do? Yeah, so absolutely. Um, I haven't heard anything from the city. To be clear, they were actually laying hands on people without masks. I saw somebody praying with a woman in a wheelchair without masks. Could you imagine that, Margaret? Praying for a woman in a wheelchair without mask on. She doesn't have a mask on. They don't have mask on. And they should be protecting people. They're really uh, making people, putting people in vulnerable situations. And so for folks who want to uh, reach us, I'm on Instagram at creatingjustice.la uh, and also uh, the, our website is the row 
uh, church, I mean, the, the, uh, the church without walls or the road church.com, the road church.com. I'm also on Facebook and of course, and also folks can reach, uh, the Los Angeles community action network. You can just Google them and you will find them, uh, in Los Angeles off of sixth street. Right. Well, Pastor Q, we're going to continue to keep an eye on this situation. We appreciate you. Thank you so much uh, for your work and your success. I mean, they did not expect um, what looked to me like hundreds of people um, defending uh, Skid Row in the in the yeah, people in Los Angeles. People in Los Angeles. Yeah, people in Los Angeles care about Skid Row. Over a hundred cars showed up. Wow, that's 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 just fantastic. Thank you so much. And and also to say that for people who want to see the um the Facebook Live event by um faith leaders and more of what the Poor People's Campaign of California did, please go to the Facebook page of the California Poor People's Campaign. Thank you so much, Pastor Q. Thank you all for right. all your work, Margaret. Blessings. Thank you. And we're going to wrap our show up now. We have uh, some uh, sad news. The artist John Oderbridge, Los Angeles cultural leader, is how the um, the Los Angeles Times uh, referred to him. An artist um, has passed away. Um, it was earlier. He actually died on November the 12th. Um, he was 87 years old. Um, we don't know about a cause of death, but he made incredibly uh, powerful art sculptures from what people would generally dismiss as, as junk or, or cast off. And uh, uh, what I'd like to do is to welcome um, artist uh, Michael Massenberg, um, who is well known in Southern California uh, for his art and indeed across the nation. He's exhibited in galleries and museums, uh, completed private commissions, and worked on public art projects throughout the country and abroad. A list of his public artwork clients is quite extensive, including the American Jazz uh, Museum. And uh, he also um, along with his art making practices, he's a teaching artist, community organizer, and activist for various organizations and causes. And I'm happy to say one of those causes is a victim's memorial for the women, the black women killed in a series of serial murders here in Southern California. But uh, Michael Massenberg, welcome. Uh, it's a pleasure and an honor to be here with you this morning. Thank you. So, Michael, uh, you know, tell us, a, a lot of our listeners may not know about John Oderbridge and his impact. Uh, tell us about that. Uh, yes. Uh, I know, uh, uh, for those who don't know, uh, when you think about arts and culture in Los Angeles, like particularly, let's say, for instance, the Watchtowers uh, Jazz and Drum Festival, uh, and also thinking about the young people who have been uh, – opportunity to have art classes uh, in, in, in our communities. Uh, think about like the, uh, like you mentioned in regards to uh, uh, things being reappropriated as far as things that normally are discarded are recreated in, in a way where it's now of value and has some meaning and histories and stories in them. So uh, in some way or form, someone has been in our, in our city and also across the board have been touched by him indirectly. Uh, he's been a service to the community for decades, uh, uh, going back into the 60s. Uh, and he is 
uh, also was a mentor to a lot of uh, artists and cultural workers and administrators. He worked through the city of Los Angeles for many years uh, when he was director at the Watts Towers Art Center. And uh, his his impact is, is so large that there are people having conversations about him on a daily basis we don't even know. Because a lot of my number right. of friends, we would talk about John uh, just in a part of the conversation. Uh, and it's an ongoing thing. So it's it's a very spiritual, very cultural, very uh, uh, big thing that sometimes you can't always put your hand on. But he has a he definitely had his hand on a lot of stuff. Right, and and he was called uh, by some a poet, philosopher, or contemporary uh, Gria, and he was a mentor to you. You mentioned to me, is that right, Michael? Tell us about that because I I I love your art. If you don't know the work of Michael Massenburg, please Google him and and take a, a look at it. Um, just the, the the depth of 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 meaning and reflection of so much in in what you do. But he was a mentor to you. How, how did he? How did that happen? How did he inspire you? Uh, yes, a very big, a big part of it. Um, it's interesting because my first time at the Watts Tower was like about like 1981 for a painting class uh, through uh, another instructor. I had uh, Vanilla Silvers when I was at Cal State Long Beach, and I was a business major at the time. Um, but some years later, I decided that I wanted to commit to doing art. Uh, I really enjoyed the process, but didn't have any any connections or any relation to anyone in, in the field. So I decided to go to the Watts Towers right around like 1990. And there I would kind of hang out there and I ended, ended up talking to John. Actually, I didn't know who he was in the beginning. And we had started having these conversations. And then he even mentioned the fact that he remembered me from this class from eight, nine years ago. And I didn't remember who, I didn't know who he was. And knowing that was John. So we developed a relationship. Uh, he was very helpful in and and sharing information and giving um it became more became like a part of a, a not only him but also an extension of a family of other other artists with like minds who were about like community who were about about service there was more than just uh creating works but also how we can impact our our communities with the art and art thinking practices um he definitely was a living example of that. So in regards to that, uh, throughout the years, he would always have a studio open to artists and people abroad. Uh, he had a certain way how he was able to communicate with people uh, in many ways where it didn't matter if it was in City Hall, whether it be someone on the streets. Uh, he was very connected to him. So that was a page that I definitely learned a lot from him in that regards in, in a lot of my practices today. Yes, and John Wilford Odebridge, he was born March 12, 1933, in Greenville, North Carolina, the second of eight children and survived by uh, four of his siblings. Uh, just quickly, because we do want to do an honoring song, uh, the uh, tradition of Sojourner Truth playing the morning song as we remember uh, John Outerbridge. But also, um, a quick comment, Michael, because the idea of taking what people see as trash and making mm -hmm. it into art, to me, just seems also symbolic of communities that are so devalued and dismissed and in a lot of ways seen as trash. But clearly, um, there is this art and there's beauty and so much more there. Um, just a quick thought on, on that. That's part of his contribution, oh, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, yes. As a matter of fact, in Watts is a 
tradition of that, going back to Simon Dio's Towers, uh, which was created by a, a, a laborer who just basically just created this monumental art piece. Uh, yeah. And it was and through the tradition of when before John there was Nora Purefoy, where uh, who's also a friend friend of John's, who used discards from the Watts Rebellion to create art. Uh, wow! And so and so and also you, out of that you have people like Betty Saar. John Riddle, David Hammonds, who use a lot of these materials, everyday materials that we all know and are connected to. But uh, but let's say you see like a, a old photograph or you see like a, a, a piece of a fabric, it reminds you of something that keeps you connected. It, show, it reminds you of your humanity. And, you, and it's something that that's not like, which makes it also important too. It wasn't something that was foreign, like I don't I don't understand this abstract. I don't understand what this art means. But you understand things that you use in your everyday life, and they will right. be used that yeah. to connect it. Well, Michael, we'll need to have you back because I want to l- learn so much more of what you just spoke about. But what we want to do now um, um, is to honor. Uh, the memory and to celebrate his life, but also the mourning, the sadness that we feel with the death of John Oderbridge. We're going to play our usual mourning song uh, and the Not a Freaky album. Thank you. And we go out uh, mourning the passing of John Elderbridge, the black artist who died at the age of 87 years old. We are out of time. I'd like to thank all of uh, today's guests. I'd like to thank the Sojourner Truth team, our audio engineer, Lizette Tapi, our system producer, Romero Funes. Today's show produced by me. That's Margaret Prescott. If you'd like a copy of today's show, please contact the Pacifica Radio Archives at 1-800-735-0220. Go online to pacificaradioarchives.org. Thank you for listening. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. I was walking and talking with my mind.